0: Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn, he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people were gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. Teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now leave your life of sin. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11, and that's where we're at in our journey through the gospel of John. We've been going through this series as a church on and off throughout the year. We're working our way through John's gospel, and we come to this, this, this powerful, this moving passage in John 8, and it's like, Oh, I love it! It's one of those passages that like, it pulls on your heartstrings. It's one of the most uh, probably well-known encounters that Jesus has. It's known within the church, but it's even known uh, outside of the church. People are like, "Oh yeah, the, the time when when Jesus he, he's the whole like yeah anybody who's not sin you throw the first stone." Like people know this passage. We love this passage. It's emotional. It's like. We love the beauty of seeing Jesus just like forgiving and loving and displaying grace and compassion on this, this person who's, who's, who's this, this sinful woman. And then we, we love the idea of Jesus calling out the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. We're like, yeah, get him, Jesus. And we, we love this, how Jesus, how beautiful it is that he, he elevates the status of, of women in a society that was uh, very patriarchal, very like just kind of women are kind of second-class citizens. And Jesus is like, no, like, it's, it, you're, you're worthy, you have value, you have dignity. Like, we're like, oh, I love this passage so moving, it, it's emotional, it, we, we, get, we get stirred up about it. Well, there's a problem, though, with this passage. And here's the problem. That most likely, John didn't write that, and yet it's in our New Testaments, and it's part of our Bible as the Gospel of John. So what do we do with that? For some of you, maybe that's the first time you've ever heard that it's likely that John did not write that, and you're like, what, I did not know this. Others of you, maybe you've heard that before, maybe you're not getting much thought. Some of you may be like, this is the crisis of faith happening right now. What do I do? This, I thought this was in the Bible. I can't trust this. Maybe you're here or you're watching and you're someone who's a little skeptical already, skeptical of Christian faith and love like, the Bible. And you like, you see? See, that's it right there. Can't trust the Bible. You can't trust what, what it says. And, you know, it's just, it's it's just it's old and and, and, and and it's been translated and all these kind of things because it's not actually there. And In fact, if you actually... Um, if you've got a, like a physical copy of a Bible with you that you're looking at right now, if not, we got some in the back of the room, you'll see that there's, uh, there's a little note. It's either in brackets or in parentheses or in italics that says, the earliest manuscripts do not include John 7:53, which is the last verse of, of John 7 through 8:11, which is what we just read. Earliest manuscripts don't have this there and yet there it is. What do we do with that? What do we do with that? Um, let me just say that today is going to be a little bit different, okay? This isn't going to so much be a sermon as it's going to be, like, a little bit of a, of a of a lecture or classroom setting. And some of you are going to love that, and some of you are going to hate that. And I'm sorry if you hate it, but we're going to do it together because this is important that we talk about. It's important that, like, as people who are either following Jesus um, or, or who are, like, considering following Jesus, one of the things about being a Christian is, like, this thing is really, really important. It's like, man, I, I believe this is, the word is like authoritative. This tells me how to live, that this is inspired, that, that like, so what, what, can I trust this? What is it? Where did it come from? Can, can I trust what's in there? And so we're gonna kind of poke at that a little bit today and try to work our way through that. And let me just say right off the bat, I'm not an expert in this area, okay? There's, a, there's an entire field called textual criticism. And some of you are like, I'm bored already, okay? Textual critics, their job is to look at ancient documents, any kind of ancient documents, and, and try to get back and study it and go, okay, what did this originally say? And so I am not an expert in this. In fact, just, this is a, some of you are gonna be like, yeah, we already know this. And others, you just need to know this. Pastors are really not experts in in anything, right? (laughs) You're like, hey, I knew that. And here's what I mean by that. It's like, we're not biblical scholars. Some of us, some some of them are. Not biblical scholars or like necessarily like theologians or textual critics. Like the way I see see my job is like, I'm 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 a curator of information and I care for a church and go, here's, some stuff that's important to know. But I'm gonna be working off of some information from a guy who is an expert in this, um, in this field today. Um, his name's Dr. Daniel Wallace. He's probably the foremost um, expert in this field in, in the United States today. Um, written books and all these kind of things. In fact, again, this, this is gonna be a page turner. He wrote the book, Greek Grammar Beyond the Basics. And some of you are like, yes. So you are like, I'm going to read that, put me to bed tonight. Greek grammar beyond the basics, but two-thirds of colleges in the United States that teach grammar use that as their textbook. So this is the guy that is like, he knows what he's talking about. Um, and so if you're really into this stuff, you can YouTube him or Google him later and find all kinds of information. Uh, but we're going to try to try to ask this question, what is the New Testament? Can we trust it? How do we get it? And the reason I'm talking about the New Testament, and not the whole Bible, is because uh, the New Testament part about Jesus, like the, the whole, like the Bible, Old Testament, a whole another animal, and would we be here forever. So I want to focus in on this idea of the New Testament. Can Can we trust it or is it like the telephone game, the telephone game? You guys know the telephone game? Who's ever played the telephone game? All right, we're all going to play together. Just kidding. We're not. Okay, because that would take a really long time. That would be the whole sermon. We just played telephone today. So you're like, That sounds pretty fun. Okay, that sounds good. The telephone game goes like this just to refresh your minds or if you don't know what it is. One person, they're given a piece of information and they whisper it to the next person and the next person to the next person to the next person to the next person to the next person. At the end of the game, the last person stands up and they say what the message was. And then the first person stands up and says what the message originally was, and everybody laughs because it's nowhere even close. And kind of the critique and what many critics will say about uh, the Bible and kind of the pop culture way of thinking about the Bible is like, yeah, it's like the telephone game. It's been passed down so long we don't even really know what it means we don't know what it says we can't we can't be sure that this is who jesus really was or or what he said or or what he did and if you're if you're someone who again you're maybe a little skeptical of faith maybe this is where you land Um, if you're someone who's a christian i guarantee you that this is what your non-christian neighbors and friends and relatives and co-workers and classmates this is what they think so is it that or not this is kind of the pop culture way of thinking of it a couple of quotes this morning our friend dan brown who wrote the da vinci code said this in The Da Vinci Code, uh, which is a a fictional book and then movie based on it, by the way. People that came out, people were like, what? This is true. It's like, it's fiction. It's fiction. Okay. Here's what Dan Brown said, that man created it, talking about the Bible, as a historical record of tumultuous times. It's evolved through countless translations, editions, and revisions. History has never had a definitive version of the book, or Kurt Eichenwald. Journalist writing for Newsweek in 2014 said this, no television preacher has ever read the Bible, neither has any evangelical politician, neither has the Pope, neither have I, and neither have you. At best, we've all read a bad translation, a translation of translations of translations, of hand-copied copies of copies of copies of copies, and on and on hundreds of times translations, it's copies, it's a bad version of the telephone game. Now, those guys aren't textual scholars, they're not textual critics, but they do represent kind of popular level thinking about this thing we call the Bible, this thing we call the New Testament. There is, however, to be fair, someone who is a textual critic, someone who is a scholar, who shares this kind of viewpoint. He's very much become the poster child for this way of thinking. His name is Bart Ehrman. 2006, Bart Ehrman hit the mainstream when he released the book, Misquoting Jesus in that book, he says this. Not only do we not have the originals, we don't have the first copies of the originals. We don't even have the copies of the copies of the originals, or the copies of the copies of the copies of the originals. And there's no way of actually knowing that, by the way. These copies, and these copies, they all differ from one another in many thousands of places. There are more differences among our manuscripts, or the copies that we have, where we get our translations from. There are more difference among the manuscripts than there are words in the New Testament. Bart made his rounds on the late night TV shows, and he talked about this and used that quote over and over and over again. There's more differences and there are words. There's more differences than there are words. This book became a New York Times bestseller. And so the question is, is that true or not? How did we get this? What is this thing that we hold that we, again, those of us that are followers of Jesus are like, this is really important. This is like how we know who he is and how we know how to live. And How did we get this? Where did it come from? And can we trust it? Is it, can it be trusted, and this is gonna be important, when I say can it be trusted, I'm not asking the question, is it true, because that's a separate conversation. Is it true is something like, yeah, you gotta work through, but can it be trusted, in other words, is what we have here now what they wrote then? Has there been a reliable transmission of this information throughout the century? So, what is this thing and how do we get it? What is it, how do we get it? Um, Let's just start with this, it's not a book, it's a whole collection of ancient documents whole collection of ancient documents that have been brought together, specifically the New Testament. There are 27 New Testament documents that were all individual documents They were floating around, kind of getting passed around, and eventually they came together. It's a collection of ancient documents, and this collection of ancient documents that we call the New Testament did not create Christianity, and it is not the foundation of Christianity. The thing that created the Christian faith and the thing that is the foundation of the Christian faith is one thing and one thing alone. It is the resurrection of Jesus. Something happened in history. And you say, yeah, but don't, don't we know about that something that happened in history from the New Testament? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. But we also can make some pretty strong inferences about the resurrection of Jesus from other historical works, from this thing called the church that, that arose from trying to ask, okay, how does all of this happen? Whether, again, whether you come to the, the reality of is the resurrection true or not, something happened at a point in history and everything changed. And so there was this event called the Resurrection of Jesus, and that event launched a movement, this thing that became known as the church. People took to the streets and started saying, okay, you guys crucified him, God raised him, and we have seen him, so you better do something with that information. Like, turn to him. He's the king. He's the Lord. He's the Messiah. Put your faith in him. The Resurrection, the event, created the movement called the church, and eventually the church started to produce documents that got circulated around. The eyewitnesses and the earliest followers wrote down what they heard, what they saw, what they experienced, and these things we call the gospels, four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There are these first century narrative form, ancient biographical things that talk about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. Then we have all these letters, these things called epistles that are like the early church leaders writing to all these brand new Christians throughout the Roman Empire who just got done like, I was worshiping Zeus last week and now I'm like worshiping Jesus, so how do I do that? And and, and some of the church leaders write to them and they're like, okay, here's who Jesus is, here's what you do. And these begin to be circulated around in the first century. And they were so incredibly valuable because of who wrote them. Can you imagine this okay we're we're doing a little thought experiment you're you're a first century you know person living in the roman empire right last week you were worshiping zeus but then or maybe more than this last week a couple weeks ago a month ago whatever and someone shows up let's say the apostle paul shows up to, to your town or your village and starts talking about hey god has done something in the world through this person jesus he died for sins he rose from the grave you can put your faith in him and you can be in relationship with god and be a part of his kingdom do you want to do that and you're like yeah i want to do that i want to be a follower of jesus and that's like basically all you know. All you know is that and you know that like, there are, like some oral stories that have been passed down and you guys are all trying to do life together and figure out life together, which is why, you know, we do communion. Like th- that was like the thing for them because they didn't have one of these to like necessarily teach from every week. What their gathering centered around was we're going we're gonna to share communion. We're going to remind ourselves of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so you're doing that, right? First century Roman Empire. And one day someone knocks on the door of your little house church gathering like, hey, I'm, I'm, I'm a brother and sister in Christ from a couple of uh, cities over, a couple of villages over, and today I want to bring you a letter I have from, from, like, the apostle John. And you're like, like, John? Shut the front door. You mean, like, John? Like, the John? Like, John who, like, like, was there with Jesus? John who peered into an empty tomb? John who took care of Mary after Jesus was gone? Like, you have a letter from that guy? And they're like, yeah, I got a letter from, from him. Like you, the guy who who like who knew Jesus and could tell me like what he was like and what he taught and how we should you know what what the Jesus way of living was like he spent three years with Jesus and you have a letter from him to us like, yeah how valuable would that be? The, the early church found these documents to be so incredibly valuable, and, and then eventually what they started to do is like, well, we don't want to have to give this thing up because it's got to go to the next church down the road, so let us make a copy of it for ourselves, and then the letter would go along, and then the next church would make a copy of it and copy after copy after copy, and this is how the New Testament begins to be produced. These copies began circulating, and eventually they're brought together or canonized, called the New Testament canon, I don't know why we call it canon. I'm sure it has to do something with Latin or something. I just think of a canon. I think of things that explode. But like, the books that we have, say this is the New Testament. It's called the canon. Those things are eventually brought together in one place. It says these are, as, as Christians, as the church, these are our books. This is how we know about Jesus. This is how we know the faith. And that didn't happen like it's sometimes portrayed over like a you know dark room, like powerful men in robes twirling their evil mustaches like, we are gonna control the world through our Christian documents. Side note, if you wanna like use a religion to, to like control like a population, if you've ever read the New Testament, it's not very good for doing that. Because it's like, hey, lay down your life and serve people and love people and put other people above yourselves. It's like, if you're reading that in context, it's really hard to like, control people with that, right? Because it's like, no, it's about laying my life down. And so when the, these groups got together, what they did to, to determine what was canon was there was a tradition of, hey, this is what the church has always accepted from the days of the apostles, from John and from Peter and from Paul. And this has been passed down. And these are always the ones that have been our scripture. When this council, these councils got together, all they were doing was confirming, yes, these are the ones. These are the ones. So we have resurrection, we have an event that launches a movement, the church, that begins to produce documents. These documents are brought together, these documents are copied and copied and copied. This is before copy machines, it's way before printing press. And so the question becomes like, yeah, that sounds like, a lot of, that sounds like it might be the telephone game. That's a lot of copying. H- how do we know that the copies are right? Enter the field of textual criticism, right? This is, the, this is what people give their lives to, like, we're going to find out how can we get back to the original And what Ehrman said about the the differences in the New Testament is actually true, that there are more words, excuse me, there are more differences than there are words. There are about 140,000 words in the Greek in the New Testament, and there are over 400,000 differences, nearly four times as many differences in those copies that we have between one another, nearly four times as many differences as there are words. And if you just hear that, you're like, oh my gosh. Like, that sounds awful. That sounds bleak. What do we do? We're not, oh no! Like, might as well just pack it up and go home. Worship was fun. Worship was nice, but we can't trust us. What do we do? Well, we can't stop there. We've got to ask the next question that goes, wait a minute, why are there so many differences? Why are there so many variants, and what's the nature of them? The reason we have so many variants or so many differences between our copies and manuscripts is because we have so many copies. We're going to do a little thought experiment you guys to, to use your, your logic and your reason. One person got this right in the volunteer service, okay? I mean, there's only a couple people in the volunteer service in their defense. But if you only have one ancient manuscript, you only have one copy of something, how many differences will there be? Zero, that's right. I see, I see it up there. Zero, yeah, because you don't have anything to compare it to. It's like, well, this is the only one we have, so there's no differences. If you have two copies you have a few more differences. If it's three, you have a few more, and four, a few more, and so on and so forth. The more copies you have, the more differences that there will be. In fact, it actually becomes a good thing. The more copies you have, the more differences you have. It begins to be like, almost like, a, like tree roots, where if there's a difference, you can start to trace back where that difference came from. It's like, oh, there was this monastery here that copied this wrong, and so they all spelled this word wrong. And so we can see that these copies all come from this copy because they all, and so you can trace that thing. The more copies that you have, the more differences that they're going to be. And so how many copies, how many manuscripts of the New Testament do we have? This is pre-printing press. Some of these are older. Some of them are are newer. So some of them are 10th, 11th, 12th century, stuff like that. Some of them are very, very early, second, third, fourth century. How many copies do we have? In the Greek, there's over 5,500. We continue to find more. We don't we don't know how many are out there. There's some that are just sitting waiting to be dated because like, there's not enough textual critics to go through all the data, but there's over 5,500 copies in Greek right now. Most of them don't have the entire New Testament in them, but some do, and that doesn't mean that they're short. The length of the average Greek manuscript is 450 pages. 5,500 in Greek, but Greek is the original language of the Old Testament, but it's not the only language it was copied into. In the second century, it began to be copied into Latin. And eventually, when the, the capitals moved from Rome to Constantinople in the fourth century, Latin exploded and became the official language, and so... We have over 10,000 copies in Latin. There are other languages in the early centuries as well that it was copied into, including Syriac, Coptic, Armenian, Hebrew. We have somewhere between five and 10,000 copies in these other languages. Altogether, there are between 20 and 25,000 ancient copies, ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. And even if they all disappeared like overnight, and we had no more manuscripts, we would not lose source material for the New Testament. Because the church fathers, the the generations and leaders of the church following the first generation of the apostles, the church fathers quote the New Testament over one million times. There are people whose job is like, how many times does the church fathers quote the New Testament? Over one million quotations from the church fathers. An example would be Ignatius. Ignatius was a disciple of John who wrote the gospel that we're working our way through. Ignatius died around 108 AD. And Ignatius quotes New Testament documents several different places. Some of the gospels, some of the letters of Paul. We could, we could reconstruct virtually the entire New Testament just by the quotations of the church fathers. 20,000 25,000 copies, over 1 million quotations from the church fathers. Um, why does that matter? You're asking. You need something to compare it to. So I'm going to give you one set of data. There's lots of data that communicates the same thing. But one thing, um, we're talking about history. We're talking about reliability. And so there are five ancient historians that give us pretty much everything we know about the Greco-Roman ancient world. Everything we know about ancient Greece and ancient Rome comes from these five guys, Thucydides, Herodotus, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius. You don't need to remember that. You can look it up later. Thucydides, Herodotus, Livy, Tacitus, and Suetonius. Of Livy, we have about 30 manuscripts. The earliest we have is 300 years after he wrote. Of Tacitus, we have three manuscripts the earliest of which is 800 years after he wrote. If you put these five guys together, we are waiting at least 300 years before we have anything, and all combined, we have 400 manuscripts of these five people that give us everything that we know about the Greco-Roman world. Anything you've ever learned in a high school or college history course you've seen on the Discovery Channel has come from one of these five guys, and they are considered incredible sources of information for knowing what the Greco-Roman world was like. 400 manuscripts, 300 years after the fact. Compare that to the New Testament. We have 5,500 in Greek, 10,000 in Latin, five to 10,000 in other languages, a million quotes from the church fathers, and the earliest fragment that we're going to look at in a couple minutes dates to within decades of the original. Like the New Testament is in a completely different category of anything that's ever been produced in the ancient world It's in a completely different category in fact scholars say we have an embarrassment of riches it's just like we have so much information we're not lacking for evidence and so like to to say that hey we can't trust or we can't believe the new testament documents because maybe there's differences maybe we don't have enough to hold that view and to like to to go there with that kind of logic we would also have to say we also can't trust anything that we know about the ancient greco-roman world we just can't know because there is a mountain more evidence for the new testament And so we got a lot of them. We have an embarrassment of riches, but the next question is how old are they? I told you I'd show you a manuscript. Here's one. Let me introduce you to P52. P because it's written on papyrus, Uh, 52 because they they number things. This is P52. You're actually looking at, that's the same thing um, uh, mirrored because it's written front and back. So that's just one little document flipped over. You can kind of see how it maps on. P52 contains part of the Gospel of John. Again, the Gospel that we've been working through. Contains part of John 18. There's some verses on the front. There's some verses on the back. This is the oldest scrap of a New Testament manuscript that we have. P52 has a really interesting uh, kind of history. In 1844, okay, class, we're going back in time. In 1844, there was a German scholar by the name of F.C. Bauer. F.C. Bauer is one of the fathers of he's known of theological liberalism. Um, he was a leader at the Tübingen School in Germany and kind of one of the authors of German higher criticism that basically, like, went to the bible and said most of the stuff isn't real it's just kind of metaphor and we're going to uh, eliminate a lot of the stuff um, actually interestingly if you're a person that likes to study history you ever heard in uh, america or the american church the the modernist fundamentalist controversy that was when the kind of ideas of bauer and other german higher critics made their way to the u.s and there was kind of divide in the church um, and a lot of that came together around the person of william jennings bryan who was a politician at the in the Early 20th century, Scopes Monkey Trial. I like history. Some of you don't, but I'm just saying. It's cool. It's all connected. Okay, so F.C. Bauer. F.C. Bauer believed um, that there, there was this idea that Jewish Christianity was one thing and Gentile Christianity was another thing, and the two of them weren't synthesized. They didn't come together until much, much later, until like 170 A.D. And so because of that, he said the Gospel of John couldn't be any earlier than 170 A.D meaning it wasn't written in the first century. It's not a reliable eyewitness. It's not by somebody who was actually there, who actually saw, who actually knew Jesus. It was much, much later. It was produced by the church much later. And that thinking about the gospel of John held sway in um, scholarship for about 90 years. And then in 1934, 1934, a guy by the name of Colin Roberts discovered P52. He was studying at the University of England, sifting through papyrus scraps in the John Rylands Library. Um, And he finds this scrap, and he realizes that what's on it is the Gospel of John. This little credit card-sized scrap of papyrus with the Gospel of John on it, and he sends it off to the leading—they're called papyrologists—to date this thing in Europe. Three separate papyrologists write back to him and say this should be this is I would date this between no later than 150, as early as 100 AD. A fourth writes back to him and says I should like a date around 90. So, F.C. Bauer says John is not even written originally until 170 AD. And now we have a copy that was written maybe around 90 AD. And I am a simple man, okay? But the last time I checked, copies tend to come after the original, yes? And so, with one discovery of P52, nearly a century of German scholarship went up in flames. Because if that was written, If that copy is dated to 90 AD, that means the original was written, I don't know, sometime around the actual life of John. One scholar has even said that basically this copy was written while the ink on John's original uh, gospel was still wet. So here's the idea behind all this. What I want you to know is that the further and further we move back and back and back, we get more manuscripts. We continue to discover more and more and more. We actually get closer and closer and closer to the original For example, the 1611 KJV, King James Version, was based on seven Greek manuscripts, and it was a very, very accurate translation. We have nearly a thousand times that many today. The more scholarship we do, the more we discover we get closer and closer to the original, not further and further away. It's actually the opposite of the telephone game. It's the opposite of the telephone game. Now, there are some variants, and we shouldn't hide that, we shouldn't run away from that, we shouldn't ignore that, Um, but we have to ask the question, what is the nature of those variants? Do they make a difference? The two questions are, are they meaningful? Are they viable? Meaningful meaning, do they change the meaning of the text? Viable meaning, is this like le- something that's legit, not like a later edition? And so i will give you some categories for these, these kind of variants. One category is spelling differences. A lot of different ways you can spell things in Greek. For example, the name John could be spelled with one N or two, and that was up to the different scribes. And so a, a variation would be one time it's got one N, and one time it's got two Ns, and so that's, that's a difference. Another difference in spelling is the little word, new. The Greek, it's like a little end. You put it on the end of a word if the next word starts with a vowel and it was a preference and some did and some didn't. All in all, of all the variants that we have, 70% of them fall into spelling differences. The other category that's a big one is alterations that can't be translated into English because of the way the Greek language works. Dr. Wallace gives the example of, uh, he he gives the sentences, John loves Mary. In English, we read John loves Mary. There's only one way to write John loves Mary, but because of the way the Greek language works, you can structure things different. Word order doesn't matter, and they have this thing with the, the, the definite article. It's the word the. You can put the word the before a proper name. Who wishes we still did that in English, right? Hi, I'm the Phil, right? right? <laughs> it's just, it just sounds cool, a little, a little arrogant maybe, but they did that in Greek, and it wasn't right or wrong. They just did it with all of that. He said there are over 500 ways you could write John loves Mary in Greek, and every single time in English, we would translate it John loves Mary. Between that category and the spelling differences, it makes up for n- over 99% of the differences that we have in our copies. Over 99% of them do not matter. But there is that less than 1% that are meaningful and that are viable. And again, it, whether you're exploring faith, you should know this. If you're a Christian, you should know this as well. Don't just go, don't just kind of do this, this kind of uh, uh, ignorant, like, like, oh yeah, I don't know. Like, we just trust it, we just trust it. No, like we wanna have intelligent conversations. And so of the ones that are meaningful and viable, let me give you a couple examples. Number one uh, would be, 1 uh, Thessalonians two seven, the Apostle Paul is writing, and he either says, we were like little children among you, or we were gentle among you. Little children or gentle. The difference is one letter in the Greek. It's either apioi or napioi. That's a meaningful difference. Another one would be Mark 9.29. The disciples are trying to cast out a demon, and they can't do it. And Jesus is like, well, this kind only comes out with prayer. And some translations or some manuscripts say prayer and fasting. That's a difference. Or maybe one of my personal favorites, because it has to do with end times and I like riling up people to get really into end time stuff. You know? If that's you, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for picking on you. It's just, it's just, a, it's just a pet peeve of mine. It's a hobby of mine. Because I want, I want us to focus on, on Jesus and the gospel and loving our neighbors, right? But number of the beast. Everybody knows the number of the beast, whether you're a Christian or not, because it's like all over pop culture and everything. What is it? Shout, can you shout this out in church? Go ahead and do it. I don't know. Oh, gosh. Lord, help us. Okay. Right? <laughs> and it's like everybody knows. like the number of the beast is 666. Or is it? Because in a couple of our manuscripts of Revelation, including like the second most important one that we have for translation and the oldest scrap we have, it says the number of the beast is 616. And we even have some early church fathers that are like debating this. And so it's like, okay, that's a meaningful and viable difference. But here's, here's the thing. None of those has changed the core meaning of the text. It's interesting. It's fun to talk about. There's pages and pages of scholarship about them but it's a word here or there. It's a verse here or there. The longest and most significant we want one that we have in the New Testament is the, is the section of John that we opened up with today, the woman caught in adultery. It's like that's not in the earliest manuscripts. It actually doesn't even sound like John. You know how when someone writes, you can hear, like, it's like, oh, so-and-so wrote this. I can tell because they write a certain way. They use certain words. All well, the New Testament authors are the same way. Like, they have certain phrases and words that they like to use. And when you read John 1, uh, 8, 1 through 11, it's like, this doesn't sound like John. It doesn't seem to fit here. What it really sounds like is actually a lot like Luke. Um, There are words and phrases that are used in John 8, 1 through 11. The only other place you find them in the New Testament is Luke and Acts. Luke wrote both of those. So if you look at the notes, like, some manuscripts actually have this here at this spot in John. Some have it in different places in Luke. It just kind of floats around. It just kind of floats around. but, But here's kind of where I land. Here's where most scholars land that would say... This, what we read this morning, is not an original part of the New Testament, but it's likely something that happened. It's not something that was included in the original documents, but it is a historical event. One, again, it sounds a lot like Luke. Two, it matches up exactly with what we already know um, about Jesus. I think this falls into the category as we've been going through the Gospel of John, we've gone back to his ending a couple of times, and, and John says, hey, I, like, the, what I've written here, like, he doesn't even begin to scratch the surface. This isn't everything that Jesus has done, but I've just given you a little sampling. If we wrote down everything Jesus did, we, not enough, all the books in the world could not hold it, like John says that, and so I'm like, well, this seems like it might be one of those things that Jesus did, but wasn't included, didn't make the final cut, and so it's it's not in our New Testament, but it is likely a historical event, and here's the important thing with all of these differences. That whether you include john 8 1 through 11 in the new testament or not it does not add nor subtract anything we know about jesus or the christian faith those things that we love about this passage about the woman caught in adultery and the way that jesus engages with her we love the grace and the forgiveness and the love and the compassion is that the only place we see that from jesus no we see it all over the place we love jesus like confronting and calling out the religious hypocrisy is that the only time that jesus does that no he does it all over the place we love how Jesus like, just gives dignity and value and elevates the status of, of women in this society. Is that the only time Jesus does that? No. He does it all over the place. None of it adds or removes anything from the person of Jesus or the Christian faith, and that is true of all of the meaningful and, and viable changes or differences or variants in the New Testament. I know, it's, not, it's not exciting and it's not juicy. It's like, well, where's, where's, the, where's the manuscript that says Jesus had a wife? Where's that one? Or where's the one that says, you know, he wasn't crucified, he fell off a cliff? I wanna read that one. And it's like, well, those ones don't exist. There are no manuscripts that have any kind of difference that rises to that level. And yet that idea persists. It's like, well, we can't trust it. And we don't know what they actually said, that really this Jesus guy legend developed and a bunch of stuff got embellished and added later. And the church kind of added a bunch of things on. Again, Dan Brown in the Da Vinci Code sums it up well. He says, until that moment in history, and the moment in history he's talking about is the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. It was kind of uh, orchestrated or commissioned by Emperor Constantine. Until that moment in history, Jesus was viewed by his followers as a mortal prophet, a great and powerful man, but a man nonetheless, immortal. mortal." And so, hey, the, the, the church, man, the church invented the deity of Jesus. He wasn't really God in the flesh. The, the church did that under, the you know, the, the instruction of Constantine to have this new Roman religion, to bring Rome under the banner of Christianity. That was a, a later addition. I want to give us one more manuscript here this morning. Let me introduce you to P66. P66. P66 is... Uh, an interesting manuscript that contains almost the entirety of the gospel of john we're missing some parts and pieces that have disintegrated over the years but almost the entirety of the gospel of john is in p66 p66 is dated to about 200 a.d 125 years before the council of nicaea what you're looking at is page one chapter one of the gospel of john from p66 let's read along shall we john one in the beginning was the word the word was with God, and the word was God. Skip down a few verses. And the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. 125 years before Constantine, the church was saying what the church had been saying since the, the very moment that Jesus was raised from the dead, from the earliest days. They said, you know who that man was? He was God in the flesh. He was full of grace and truth. He, he, he dwelt among us. He died for our sins. He rose from the grave. And who he was then is who he is now. And what they wrote then is what we have now. So even the critic Bart Armin was forced to, to confess in the paperback edition of Misquoting Jesus when it came out later. There was a Q&A appendix in the back. And even Ehrman says this, the essential Christian belief is not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Here's what it is, guys. There is a long and rich traceable history of our New Testament. Like, it is long, it is complicated, it is rich, but it is, it is traceable. We're not left wondering. We can go, no, I see where it came from, from here to here to here to here to here. And there are a whole lot of variants in the manuscripts, yes. But over 99% of them are not meaningful, And the less than 1% that are do not change the nature of the Christian faith. They do not change the nature of who Jesus is. They do not add nor subtract anything from him. We can trust that what we have now is what they wrote then. What they wrote then is that Jesus is God in the flesh, that he dwelt among us, that he was full of grace and truth, that he lived the perfect life that none of us could live, that he died across the, on the cross to take the, the penalty for our sins to reconcile us to God, that he rose from the grave, defeating the power of death, that every single claim that they make about him is true. What we have now is what they wrote then. Now, as I said at the beginning, that doesn't automatically mean that it's true, That's up to each one of us to figure out. That's up to us to work through and go, okay, is this true? And I would invite you to keep coming back and keep tuning in because all we do every single week is talk about this Jesus guy because we think he's the best thing this world's got going. And so it doesn't mean that it's true, but what it does mean is that we can trust this as a reliable witness. So if you're someone that's exploring faith or you've got questions, you're like, I don't know, I understand, I get that it's a hard thing to go, "I, I believe that a guy rose from the dead. And that's a stumbling block to faith, like that is the primary stumbling block. Jesus died and rose from the dead. But one stumbling block that can be removed in your journey is being able to trust that this is accurate, that we have what they wrote down. So if you're exploring faith, I want to encourage you with that. And if you are a follower of Jesus, if you're already a Christian, here's what this means for you and me. That when we open this up, we can trust that we are getting a picture of who Jesus really is. We can know his heart We, we can know what, how, he, how he views the world How he thinks about you and me He can know who we are We can know who he is We can know what he's calling us to And what he offers us It's been revealed to us As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago There's this three-legged stool that goes Okay, I have the scripture I'm gonna read it as I'm empowered by his spirit I'm gonna read it in community with the saints And I'll be able to see the beautiful, beautiful picture Of who Jesus is Let's pray together God, I thank you so much. Thank you for preserving these words for us for thousands of years. I thank you that that we we can open the pages of scripture and we can know who you are. We can see what you've done. We can see we can be confronted with the beauty of Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the men and women who wrote these documents down, who copied them, who circulated them. I thank you for the men and women who lost their lives so that we could have this today. Lord, I pray that your spirit will be working and moving in us, to be stirring in us. You would draw us closer to yourself. I pray that we would open up your word, and as we do that, we would just see just a bigger and bigger, more beautiful picture of you. We pray this in Jesus' name.